Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. This week, we're doing a story that I have wanted to do forever. This is a story that's been on my list for like a year, Ooh, I think. Yummy. So this, <laughs> so this is a story of a group of aristocratic British colonists in Kenya called the Happy Valley Set. Uh-huh. And this is as reported by James Fox in the fantastic book, White Mischief. <laughs> that's okay? a great name. I know. I saw that title. I was like... I'm on board. What, and they called themselves the Happy Valley set? Yeah. Oh, you know, it's bad It's bad news if you go with the, titling yourself something like that. I want to say, too, uh-huh. that James Fox, the author, has just the most amazing grip on the English language. And just generally, like culturally, the names and titles of these lords and ladies yeah. are just I, I just think they're the most fun thing. I mean, just oh, yeah. even just saying them out loud. So anyway, we're going to have a blast with this one. Uh-huh. So I'm going to finish my intro. While the rest of the world was ramping up to join World War II, a group of independently wealthy aristocrats found a little oasis to get blasted and have orgies in. <laughs> in Kenya. Okay. No, that's, I'm not, no, that's, we're not retaking that. That's staying in, in the podcast. I mean, I'm sorry. I was like, I wrote this and I was like, wow, that's pretty intense. All so right, there's good. a lot of sex and drugs in this one. Plus, uh-huh. like I said, amazing names like Hugh Chalamanle, Third Baron Delamere. Oh my God. <laughs> this is the most amazing, wonderful things. And uh, there's a murder that went unsolved mm-hmm. for decades. It's just really a story that keeps on giving. All right, cool. Um, so this is another two-parter. And as always, we'll try to get the second episode up on Patreon a little early for all our Patreon members. Yeah. Um, so if you're a member, look for it this weekend. I'm not going to get it out on the same day as this is being released, but we will get it early. Yeah. And if you're sitting here like, what the hell is this Patreon thing that Nick and Muriel are constantly talking about? Stay tuned. And we're going to talk a little bit about the specifics of what Patreon actually is after the episode. But in the meantime, we'd like to quickly thank our newest members. Thank you, Marina, Tevin, Kevin D, Amber V, Vegan Mortician, Randy T, I'm pumping my fist in the air, <laughs> Hannah D and Gustafer for joining. And thank you, Natalie H for increasing that monthly dollar amount because because of all of you, we were able to buy new mic stands this week. We're upgrading our equipment, and it's all because of you guys supporting us on Patreon. Thank yeah. you so much. I also like to throw in there thank you to Nick's dad, Joe, Why? for his notes because he said he couldn't hear me at the end of my sentences. <laughs> yeah. So we, you know, we're definitely like upgrading our equipment, but also yeah. I'm going to practice mm-hmm. following the sentence all the way to the end. And I'm going <laughs> to practice not eating the microphone by shoving it in my mouth. 
Like it just looks like a delicious little bonbon or something. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Here? We're learning together. All right. Okay. Plus, we're going to shout out the amazing T. Monroe 9507. We see you. We know who you are for leaving us a very loving five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. You broke the curse. We were on a little bit of drought with those five-star <laughs> Apple reviews or any Apple reviews. We didn't even get hated on for a while, you know? So thank you so much. We love you. All right. So this is a true story involving murder, violence, a lot of drugs, a lot of sex and adult themes. Mm etc so if any listeners are like nick and they don't really want to hear about those kind of things please consider listening to a different podcast first of all i do want to hear about the sex and the drugs it's just the murder part that i'm like (laughs) oh god all right here we go anyways uh plus we're going to be cursing and joking so if you don't like that kind of stuff go listen to the beatles (laughs) you got me all right nicky are you ready to hear this story no okay let's get started Okay, I like reading about things that I don't know about and that by extension, I'm pretty sure you, Nicholas, Uh also don't know about. (laughs) No reason to judge me like that, but now I know who you are as a person, so. (laughs) So that being said, I really know nothing about British aristocracy and titles. Like, if you were to talk, like, I think some people, like, as a hobby, Mm -hmm. a lot of Americans are, like, really into the British monarchy. I, I like the... You know, I like watching the Queen. You Do know, you? I I really liked it. I know you didn't like the it, show. Yeah. Oh yeah, the, the Crown. Is that what it's called? I the don't Crown. Know. That's yeah. what it's called. We're clearly not fancy. <laughs> I'll watch a thing about a king. You know I what like I mean? Things. Khaleesi on the dragons and shit. Down Nabby. Come on now. You know, I'll, I'll tune in. I like that I said the Queen, and you were like, "You like that show? I like the Crown." <laughs> uh, we're so sympathetic. This is gonna be a really good episode. But my point is, is like I just wanted to give. Disclaimer Uh, that I'm like staying awake at night realizing how much I might butcher some of these titles uh because they're incredibly long and specific. And like you can be a third Baron Delamere or Mm -hmm. a 22nd Earl of Errol, but not a third Baron of Delamere. And I'm not really sure why. Does that make sense? Like Mm. I might put an errant like of in there when it's like, no, no, it's not that, right? So whatever. I dare anyone <laughs> to be offended or upset but for th- those mistakes. It's not upset. It's just like, it might sound dumb. But I'm just saying like, <laughs> I'm, try- I'm trying. I was like Googling like, why is there an of? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's not a question Google knows how to answer. <laughs> hey, if any of you out there are actual experts that would know the difference, just let us know. Like, we'll, it's an informal poll. Email us or DM us or something. Because I feel like zero out of 100,000 people would know. I don't think so. I think lots of people know. I I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll find out. Okay. Uh, anyway, there are very valid reasons why the of is there and why the of is not there. But my brain is full. So take this ride with me and we can learn together. <laughs> okay. So it's around 2.30 in the morning in Kenya. It's January 1941. There's a soft rain coming down and it's very dark without the moonlight and Mm -hmm. very, very quiet. Mm -hmm. A luxurious Buick 8 saloon slowly winds its way down an S-shaped gravel road away from Karen House. And that's the estate of the 11th Baronet, Sir John Henry Delves Broughton. 
deputy lieutenant. That's the whole thing. <laughs> okay. Great. And his new wife, mm-hmm. Diana. <laughs> a bold young socialite, half his age, known for flying her own plane to parties across Europe. She's, That's badass. She's pretty cool. Now, near the end of the windy road, about two and a half miles from Karen House, the car slows and angles slightly off course, eventually rolling to a gentle stop in a gravel pit on the side of the road. 40 minutes later, two small boys stumble on the Buick, stuck in the gravel, engine running, and headlights cutting through the rainy night. Peeking inside, they see the body of a man crumpled under the steering wheel on the floorboards of the car. This was Jocelyn Hay, 22nd Earl of Errol, infamous playboy of British Kenya and 39-year-old military secretary for the colony. He had been shot through the neck. By morning, the rain had washed away the tire tracks and footprints of any participants. Oh, damn. What's up with these two little kids walking around at 3 a.m.? I think that they were going into work. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's Oh, the okay, 40s. right. Because some <laughs> people are rich and traveling the world and flying across the country and some children are milking. Work. So I think they were milking something. Okay, so that's the world we're in. Yeah, okay, yeah, that yeah, makes yeah. sense. I mean, All it's right. not, you know, it's 1940. Yeah. yeah, and it's British colonialists in Africa. <laughs> so. It's not like they're there because everyone has everything they could ever dream of in life. Yeah, just a, just a couple people do. Yeah. So Sir John Henry Delves Broughton would stand trial for the murder of Lord Errol, supposedly motivated by the outrageously public affair Lord Errol was having with his wife, Diana. Oh, all right. Now, while Delves Broughton would ultimately be acquitted, the trial would unintentionally expose the hedonistic underbelly of British Kenya. See, while Britain and the world was being torn apart by World War II, a small but mighty group of filthy rich aristocrats were liquidating their centuries-old estates to fund wild, days-long sex parties and buy mountains of champagne, heroin, and cocaine. So (laughs) while the world burned, Uh the Happy Valley set brainstormed ways to fight boredom, playing endless games of bridge and croquet, holding orgies and dance parties, riding horses into bars... (laughs) Or simply floating away in a bathtub full of gin. By the end of this story, (laughs) Sir John Henry Delves Broughton, or Jock, as he was called, Uh will be found not guilty at trial. The Happy Valley set will fall apart, and the murder of Lord Errol will remain a mystery for decades. This is amazing. I'm a hell of, that was awesome, Muriel. No wonder it took you so damn long to write that script. I was that like, was I'm the, making this into two parts. That was great. Um, okay, so I know someone is named Jock and Diane. I don't do any long like everyone needs a short name. I, I, I can't. I'll help the names you. are gone. They're gone. Those are gone. I'll help you. I did that uh-huh. was another thing that I tried to do. So one thing that is true is like yeah. uh, a lot of these people get married like seven times and their uh-huh. titles keep changing. So some of them I'm like referring to their maiden names, uh-huh. but I'll I'll keep I'll try to keep it tight. Okay. And if you get confused, yeah. that means everyone listening is confused. Yeah. So please, if you don't know who I'm talking about, uh-huh. I will clarify. Okay, great. <laughs> as long as everyone's name is Jock, John, Diane, you know, that kind of thing. It'll be like Lord Errol sometimes. There'll be there'll be things. And also I just keep thinking of uh that story. Here's a little ditty. 
about Jock and Diane. <laughs> Two kids growing up in the heartland. <laughs> you know that song? What? Oh, yeah, what are you doing? Goes on. <laughs> what are you but doing? it's Jack and Diane. Listen. I I'm don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Every, you get is, what I'm saying? Is that like a intro to a TV show or something? Is that a theme song or you something? Know, you don't know that song? Life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. That's like a classic karaoke song. Oh. Mm. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> for those of us who know, here's yeah. a little ditty about Jock and Diane. Okay. Good. <laughs> so our story arguably starts with Lord Delamere arriving in Kenya in 1897 via a 2,000 mile camel ride. So, which is pretty drastic, That's, right? Yeah, for sure. In 1897, Hugh Chalamanli III, fuck, hold on. Hugh Chalamanli third Baron Delamere rode a camel 2,000 miles from Somalia to Kenya. The British had started settling East Africa about two years prior, and Lord Delamere wanted to check this out. So he did, and he completely fell in love with Kenya. Mm -hmm. At the time, the British were in a race with the Germans to build a railway system, like the first one in East Africa. And the British, you know, it's colonial times. They imported tens of thousands of workers from India mm -hmm. who all died by the thousands from disease, heat, and animal attacks. So not only was this a massively, you know, expensive thing, it yeah. was also just the cost of human life was really crazy. It was just this massive, classic colonial project. Yeah, that's what happened. If you were to think yeah. of a project, a <laughs> colonial project in at the turn of the century and all of its attending you know, social issues, this would be one of those things. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, yes. So the train system was stupidly ambitious, incredibly expensive, and initially fairly impractical. It ran through deserts and swamps. It went up the sides of mountains. It cut through forests. And in 1901, the project English critics dubbed, quote, the Lunatic Express was <laughs> finished. <laughs> Sounds like a Werner Herzog film. The Lunatic Express. I think that's the title of this. Why are they building this uh, railroad to like extract natural resources from Africa? Uh, you know, this is going to be a podcast about murder, so we're not going to get too deep in it. Basically, yeah. like this particular project aided um, like settling the land for farming. So it wasn't about mining, you know, whatever this this train system was, like the idea was. Yeah. Okay. So we'll talk about that just okay, briefly. Okay. Sure. So the first thing it did is it changed the nature of travel in the area really drastically because you can remember, I mean, you can kind of think, up until this point, it was pretty much solo dudes like Dr. Livingston, you know, adventuring on some sort of animal back, like horse or camel yeah, or whatever, sure, with sure. a team of porters, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that type of safari that's like really yeah you had to go on a straight up adventure to exactly get right and now you can buy a plane a train ticket and yeah. kind of get to some of those same areas right and so to pay for the train the british decided to recruit settlers to farm the lands around the train route and then export export the goods via train so that's kind of the idea mm -hmm. less mining less logging and more just like crops and livestock so many, many people answered the call. And although the area would come to be dominated by this, you know, story of aristocratic lords and ladies and American millionaires, mm -hmm. early on, the area was settled by way rougher folks, like fugitives and speculators and, you know, people who really 
wanted that Dr. Livingston adventure of like settling this wild area. Is Dr. Livingston supposed to be someone I know? Oh, it's like the guy, you know, Dr. Livingston, I presume. He's like the classic, I think he's Scottish. He's a Scottish explorer Uh and he was like, the one who was like in the jungle for a really long time and they went to look for him and found him and he was just like, I'm chilling, you know? <laughs> oh, okay. He's the classic yeah. guy, you know? Okay. Okay. And among this like rougher settlers crowd was our friend, Lord Delamere. Mm-hmm. He was right at the forefront. So Delamere was short, buff, and ugly with a really bad temper. That's basically how he's described over and over again. Uh-huh. So he's an extremely rich man living off of an inheritance from a long line of extremely rich people. In 1903, he was granted the very first plot of land in Kenya, and that was a part of a early settlement land leasing project sponsored by the British government. So... As you can imagine, the early settlement life was very chaotic and rough. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knew what was going on. And a lot of this is like a huge land grab. And so there's lots of tactics for that. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. the land occupied by nomadic tribes for centuries was kind of considered unoccupied because it wasn't traditionally settled. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. So that was just like given away in land leasing agreements because they were like, oh, it's just empty land, even though that's a part of like rotating grazing lands for these different tribes. For sure. There were these opaque deals between the British and local tribes who had basically completely different concepts of land ownership. So it kind of resulted in these deals where tribes thought they were leasing the land to the British while the British were, you know, getting these legally binding contracts Mm -hmm. together as a purchase. Yeah. You know, so a lot of this stuff kind of, we're not going to get fully into it. It it came to a head eventually. Yeah. Um, But that's how the early settlement started. And so then you have people who you know, have people on their land and they don't know why they're there. So they're like, well, I'm going to take these cows. You know, like there's just uh a lot of chaos in that. Sure. The other thing was that British settlers at the time just didn't know how to farm this specific land in Kenya. There were livestock diseases that no one had heard of. There were new types of soil compositions that people just didn't know about, you know, Mm -hmm. and you know, landscapes, like that's a swamp. That's a different kind of swamp than maybe you'd have in England. And (laughs) what does that, what, what grows around that swamp and will it kill you? You know, like that uh kind of thing. uh And of course, the other big factor was the heat. It's a very different climate, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So at the time, the British believed that the sun from the equator specifically caused spine, liver, kidney, and brain damage. So to combat the sun's rays, they would all wear these protective spine bandages and these like flannel cummerbunds. Some people were of the idea that like you needed to wear hats all at all times, even inside to uh-huh. protect your brain from the equator sun. Whoa. So, Basically, if you're doing all that kind of stuff, you're hella hot, (laughs) (laughs) right? So you're kind of like maybe uh, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way. Yeah, it's like, God, you're just sweating, (laughs) just dying. Yeah, so with the heat and also this, uh, there was like, it's about 5,000 feet above sea level in the area that most of the people were settling. So there's this really high altitude also Mm -hmm. and the elaborate hat wearing and padded gear people and especially newcomers tended to just be super duper cranky (laughs) and prone to like 
freakouts and more conflict and even like nervous breakdowns. Like everybody's just. Yeah. Well, remember when I got my heat stroke? You were so sassy. I lost my mind. <laughs> that was the craziest I've ever been. Yeah, I know. It was insane. You wouldn't do anything I told you to do. You were just like. I, mean, I don't remember anything. And when what Muriel means when she says like what I told you to do was like go in the basement and we need to cool you down. And then she went upstairs to get ice and came down and I was playing ping pong by myself. And like giving me so much attitude. I was like, lie down and drink this water. And you're like, I don't need any water. And then you drank it and then you yeah. just threw up. <laughs> it was I like got mad at your grandma. You got mad at everybody. I was like, I literally, yeah. he came in <laughs> from a barbecue and he's talking to us and I had brought my grandma a plate of food from the barbecue and he walks in because she was inside. It was too hot. It was 104 yeah. degrees. So it's like we had the air conditioning running. Yeah. Fourth so of I, July. Right. And we were going to a neighborhood barbecue. So I brought her a plate of food from the barbecue and we were sitting there talking and Nick walks in and he's like, hey, <laughs> where'd you get that food? <laughs> and he was at the same barbecue. Yeah. And we're like, I brought it from the barbecue and we were staring at him. He's like, okay, okay. And then two sentences go by and he goes, Hey, where'd you get that food? And my grandma just goes, he's drunk. And then I was like, I'm not drunk. And then he and like, stormed <laughs> out. And I was like, why are you acting like this? And you were like, acting like what? Da, 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 da. And I was like, well, whatever you, and you go, you go, well, I'm going to go throw up. <laughs> and I was like, okay, just do it upstairs. Yeah. Like, don't do it around my grandma. I don't know what yeah. your deal is. It's like two o'clock in the afternoon. And then I went up there and you were just passed out on the ground, yeah. completely dry, no sweat, and just like hot to the touch. That was so scary. It was really scary. And I, I trust me, ladies and gentlemen, and friends, uh, you know, of the jury, I've absolutely drank in my fair share. This was not a drunk thing. It was a full on. It was heat, too early for a drunk thing. We yeah. hadn't, the barbecue hadn't even started. It was like the pig was still roasting. Uh, anyways. Yeah. Uh, okay. Good so, time. Yeah, so anyway. People are losing their minds. So they're mad, right? People yeah. are getting mad. And it was said by Delamere and many others that drinking booze at night was critical to survival. They're just basically <laughs> like, you're going to be a huge bitch. Yeah. So you got to drink wine. You have to drink wine or you're not going to survive being uh, here. Which makes some sense. <laughs> so Lord Delamere went to work in 1903 and by 1909, just six years later, uh -huh. he was dead broke. He had drained the family trust that was like massive uh -huh. in his attempt to settle his land in Kenya. Mm. So from the beginning, his livestock just got really bad illnesses and infections. He tried Everything. He was like shooting whole herds of zebra um, who had these native diseases that were spreading to his livestock. Um, he tried. Like, oh, shooting them as in killing them? Yeah. Like he would just oh, be like, so I mean, it's sad. just like it's yeah. he has all the money in the world to try to do this thing that he thinks like, I'll just do it. Yeah. And then he's like doing it. And it's just like imploding in on him. It reminds me of a Geary Wrath of God. Kind yeah, of, right. You know? yeah. yeah, right. It's like basically he brought in all these imported you know, breeds of livestock mm -hmm. and they just were dying, right? Yeah. So he was trying to kill native animals. He got to the point where he was medicating and like dipping his animals every day, trying to keep, you know, diseases and like pests off of them. Mm -hmm. But these English breeds of sheep, pigs, cows and stuff like that just straight up died. Traditional English crops were wrong for the soil composition. A mm -hmm. lot of them were. And so 
you know, he's like, okay, maybe I have to switch it up. We'll rotate crops. We'll, we'll start trying to figure this thing out. And when he did, he had a little like, success, but then they were completely wiped out by fungus. And then he replanted and they were wiped out again by locusts. <laughs> right. And then to top yeah, it yeah. all off, starting in 1904, there was this really severe three-year drought. Yeah. <laughs> so, and all this hardship, right, uh-huh. was compounded by outrageous levels of bureaucracy. Like, for example, you needed written permission to draw water from streams on your own leased property. Now, that written position or written permission had to be filed with the land house in Kenya and then sent to London for approval and then sent back to the land house. <laughs> so obviously, yeah. you know, it caused these huge bureaucratic delays. So not only are they battling against the elements and their own ineptitude, mm-hmm. but they also just have to stand in line at the DMV that yeah. they're imposing on themselves. <laughs> yeah. And like, of course, Lord Delamere is like not having it. He's uh-huh. just a forge ahead, like formidable force yeah. to be reckoned with, right? Uh-huh. So he was in constant battle with the government officials at the land house. One time he applied to build a flour mill on a part of his property and they rejected it. So he went out and he stacked all of these cords of wood under the land house and then basically said, if you don't give me my flour mill, I'm going to burn down the land house. <laughs> okay, so that's just straight <laughs> up like did. threat of arson. <laughs> and just then they totally mill. reversed the decision. Oh, so it worked? Yeah, I mean, they were just like, okay, 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 build the, build <laughs> yeah, the flour. Mill. We just said no because it seemed dumb. <laughs> right. You want it, go for it. I, I mean, that's like kind of how it felt. Like, uh-huh. it's just this decision that's kind of relatively arbitrary. It's like, just let me build it. They're like, no, I'll burn down your house. Fine. <laughs> So by 1907, the drought was over and Delamere had been rocked, but he was slowly making gains, right? He swapped his sun bandages for long, wild hair grown down to his shoulders for the sun protection. Mm -hmm. He moved his livestock to a river basin where they finally stopped dying and he learned how to plant the right crops for the area Mm -hmm. and most importantly he had learned the language and the farming techniques of the maasai tribe which was one of the most dominant of the nomadic tribes native to the area Mm -hmm. so they really knew like during the summer bring your herd over here during the rainy season move them over here like don't put them in those bushes there's these (laughs) ticks that like you know he's kind of helping them out right they're helping him they'll sorry they're helping him out (laughs) correct yeah they're like we're the people that have been living here and thriving here for centuries maybe maybe just go over there by that tree real quick right and when they first met you know when the maasai first encountered delamere they didn't get along right away they jacked him for his livestock like every single day yeah because for the maasai their belief was that basically god had said all cattle belong to them uh-huh. so like if they saw an imported cow it's like that's my cow right you know they don't care they weren't stealing it they right. were just having their cow be their cow exactly and they actually didn't eat meat um they didn't slaughter or sell their cattle so when delamere met them the chiefs of the maasai tribe each had about fifty thousand head of cattle apiece wow like because they were just like collecting cows man and grazing them (sighs) okay i know this is deep and maybe i'll cut this out of the episode but i wonder if that's what the british thought they were doing with land too not like we're taking this land but just like there's land so it's ours in the same way that like the maasai people just thought cows were theirs yeah i mean 
maybe it's just like a human thing. <laughs> it's like we see things and we're like, meh, I'm going to take that. Yeah. <laughs> if that can benefit me, then it must be the way it should go. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I feel either. like that's kind of, I, I do some, I feel like that would explain a lot of history. <laughs> yeah, sure. So anyway, eventually he was accepted and oh, accepted by the tribe and he was known for traveling with a Maasai entourage who also just hung around his estate. Mm-hmm. So tribal chiefs would come over and eat breakfast with him and hang out. So he had a whole breakfast routine where he had one single record that had one single song and he would play it every single day. Ooh, DJ repeat. I'll do that sometimes. It's called All Aboard for Margate and it's by comedian Flory Ford and uh-huh. it's just played on this wind-up record machine and uh-huh. I found a copy of it yeah. on YouTube. There's only like one recording so we're going to play it. Flory Ford sings a popular song All Aboard for Margate, a stirring record. <laughs> Now imagine uh-huh. you're sitting in your estate. Yes. Your cows and pigs are dying. You've liquidated <laughs> an estate that's been in your family for hundreds of years yeah. to support this great settlement of Kenya. Uh-huh. And you're sitting in your breakfast nook with chiefs of the Maasai and you have one piece of like British pop culture with you and it's this record and you play it every day and the (laughs) chiefs watch you and they know you're doing something right like maybe on the cusp of a mental breakdown (laughs) maybe working through some stuff maybe holding on by a thread but every morning they sit and watch you eat your eggs and listen to this song That's you're right. That's completely insane. Right? As an English speaking person <laughs> who I at least think I know what comedy is, I have literally no idea what that was. That's I that, mean, it that feels registers, like a descent into madness, right? It's yeah. screaming and like all these noises. That registers as like a zero for me. <laughs> and I speak English and know what and know what English speaking singing is well my favorite part about it is like aside from the intro it just repeats the same thing over and over again it's the same lyrics so it sounds like a cycle of madness she just says it over and over again and but it's supposed to be a comedy record i guess (laughs) it's not ha ha funny right but it's like you know it's like basically a sketch yeah right (laughs) i mean i can remember being in sicily before i had a cell phone and i had no money and i was I literally all my ATM cards, whatever, were not working. I had nothing. And I had was waiting for this train for like an hour plus in the middle of nowhere. And I hadn't heard English spoken in, you know, 10 days. And I just felt kind of scared and like very much alone. And in sync came on in the <laughs> in the train station. And I just started crying. I was so happy to hear English. This is exactly, this song reminded me of that story when I was like, uh, I was like, yeah. I gotta listen to it because I always think about that yeah. when, you know, I love that story and I've been to that town with you now and I can yeah. understand 
why that was so scary. You yeah, know what I mean? Like yeah. it really is kind of wild. Uh, and I just was like, what does he, I, when, he, when they said he played the same record every morning, I was like, what was that song? Uh, good job, Muriel. That one is really, it's really funny. Hell yeah. Okay. So Delamere obviously took himself to the brink, right? Mm-hmm. But he rebounded, eventually becoming one of the most formative figures in the entire colony, in the history of the colony. Mm-hmm. So continuing on, in 1912, a dude named Lord Cranworth wrote a book called For Profit and Sport in East Africa, detailing the first decade of British colonization of Kenya and describing it as, quote, a white man's heaven on earth. Cute. <laughs> and like these excerpts, I'm not going to read all of them, uh-huh. but they're insane. <laughs> Are they all as upsetting as that one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like like his wife has an excerpt about like managing houses and Kenya Uh and like how to discipline servants you know and it's just it's very intense she's like somebody tried to clean my antique silverware with gravel from the driveway so it you know we have to write a handbook about when it's okay to beat your servants and discipline Mm -hmm, I mean it's mm -hmm. not you know yeah it's about as awful as you think it would be (laughs) right but anyway, Lord Cranworth wrote this book and he's, he basically was like, this place is gorgeous. There's badass hunting. There's virgin grazing land and everything is just begging to be settled. And by the way, the Maasai are super chill. You know, the whole thing is great. Mm-hmm. So after Lord Cranworth's big book, you know, things start ramping up. People become more and more interested in British Kenya. And in 1920, the colony was officially established. Now, after some politicking, a flat, grassy area with high elevation and a cooler climate was designated exclusively for European use, meaning that no non-Europeans could buy or lease land there. This area was dubbed the White Highlands. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So after the colony was officially established, the aristocrats, officers, and other moneyed people flocked to the White Highlands, setting up these flamboyantly large stone and iron homes with these beautiful, expansive gardens and grass lawns, all landscaped and things like that. Uh They brought in the family silver and china and, you know, huge portraits. My impression from the book Mm -hmm. is that most people from really great houses, meaning like, you know, Downton Abbey, right? Uh It's like a big house with a name, you Uh know, that's been in the house, like the, the, the family for you know, generations Mm -hmm. and is its own little like microcosm of an economy, you know, basically the people who ran those houses in England would go up into the attics and bring everything down that wasn't actually being in use and then leave and go to Kenya. So the, the official house would like kind of keep on running Mm -hmm. back in England and you get your leftovers and kind of carry it over and try to like replicate your living in this other place. All right, cool. So this group was arguably less ambitious than the first wave. They're more concerned with having a good time with a little adventure, but like not too much adventure. Yeah, well, our man's been down there listening to the same record for decades at this point, going crazy, actually getting everything up and running. And they're like, oh, you did all the hard work? Cool. Let's just like go hang out by the pool. Yeah, yeah. They settled like this prime spot of Uh land that's just, you know, beautiful, expansive. Like, Uh you know, when you drive through... um, Wyoming or something, those like really beautiful 
vaulted skies, you Uh know, that you can see in flat land. It's just breathtaking. Yeah, totally. So these guys established country clubs, polo fields, they had race horses, and they got classily hammered, you know. For instance, (laughs) in 1926, Lord Delamere famously held a party for 250 people, and they went through 600 bottles of champagne. God damn. So do the math on that a little bit, right? Man, it sounds like that Triple R movie that we just watched, the Netflix thing. Yeah. You know, the action movie from India? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that big estate and all the British people are down there and they're like having their own parties behind their own closed walls and everything. Yeah, Yeah, right, yeah. So this was the birth of the famous Happy Valley set. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first to arrive in this new wave, for example, was 32-year-old Jack Soames. So John Bjorkraft. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Come on. Keep going. John Bjorkraft Soames, or Jack, mm-hmm. bought several thousands of acres in the colony and settled into his new estate to drink gin. Mm-hmm. He was known to employ an obscene amount of servants. He had a servant for every job in the house. So like the guy who washed the car wasn't the same guy who started the car when he wanted to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Sure. And he was well known for his extreme hatred of being alone <laughs> so <laughs> sounds like it. <laughs> that's so funny that was the joke i was gonna make he was he just couldn't he couldn't be alone so sure. he's out there in this like massive estate on all these acres yeah. and when he couldn't get people to come stay at his estate he'd take off for days at a time just going on a tour of visiting friends and staying in their houses yeah sure <laughs> and that was like the main thing as far as i can tell the happy valley set spent their time almost exclusively either hosting or being hosted at each other's estates so Mm -hmm. aka an introvert's nightmare (laughs) i keep thinking like oh man that looks awesome but i would die yeah people just come to your house and they're like i'm sleeping here (laughs) i know you can't say no i know (laughs) it's like what so lord delamere spearheaded the adventure for the boys at this point he had established a big old estate he had long flowing hair and he had a traveling group of maasai bodyguards Mm -hmm. so he was just this very effective looking figure as the king of the colony right he wasn't the king but you know like right the, the ringleader or whatever right He was also the leader of settler schemes, which I think basically was like buying properties and then either flipping them to make cash or making extravagant kicking at palaces and stuff like that. It was just activities that had to do with buying and settling land. Like, we're going to go buy this thing and make it into a polo course. Or Uh I think we could put a farm in over here and, you know, sell alfalfa. But it was mostly like a social club and not like an investment firm well it was like you know he had done it Uh and then people were like i want to dabble you know what uh i mean so then you kind of get lord rockenshire to go with you and say like (laughs) hey man oh this would be a great place for a flour mill he's like all right well i'll send my men over you know okay just, that's how I imagine Muriel's version of rich people being rich. <laughs> uh, so the big time social events uh-huh. were the races at like midsummer and Christmas. So these were also led by Lord Delamere and they he would gather the colonists and hold these wild drunken rickshaw races through the valley mm-hmm. and they would go through pistols blazing, shooting out streetlights as they went, just going 
going off. Yeah. What? And what? The horses are pulling the rickshaws? Or is rickshaws? I think they're doing it with each other. I don't actually understand. I mean, this is a part of it is that the book is fantastic. Yeah. It was still written about 40 years ago. And so there's a lot of things that the author kind of assumes that we know. <laughs> it's like rickshaws will be around forever. I can promise you that. I think, is that, or is that when people pull you? I don't. I was we just like. Know. I mean, I tried to Google, like, if you Google something, some of the things you Google and Google's like, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, I don't really, I don't know. Just comes up with a TikTok influencer <clears throat> whose name is Rick Shaw. My impression is that they're pulling each other and mm-hmm. they're all very, very drunk. Okay. So that's, that's my, okay, cool. I think that they, they did a lot of physical games and stuff like that. So that's my impression. Rugby and all that shit. Right, yeah, exactly. Totally. So they would you know do all this, they'd pile into a bar and just trash the bar right Mm -hmm. they'd brawl they'd try to find someone to make out with one time like delamere actually rode his horse into the bar and tried to roll ride his horse around the bar he was also known for shooting bottles of liquor in the bar as like target practice (laughs) (laughs) so if you can think of like the most yosemite sam situation i think that's kind of what this was like perfect there were a couple luxurious clubs established around town the most prominent being the muthiaga country club and that's where a lot of our action is going to take place Mm -hmm. so the muthiaga country club had golf courts squash courts a huge ballroom multiple dining rooms just a big sprawling estate and then they had um dormitories for single men so you could go there stag parties could come there Mm -hmm. and then rent out these sort of hostel style you know dormitory rooms but then they also had bungalows and different fancy places to stay and of course it was what i'm assuming is a classic butthole club right so like begrudgingly they let women in Uh it was men only at the bar from six to eight uh, all Jews were banned from the club. And when someone suggested they change that policy, somebody lit their piano on fire. Right. You know? Yeah. So I you, mean, yeah, of course. They're not like also hanging out with their Maasai friends. Or in whatever. the club, of right? Yeah. Not. It's not right. a it's not a utopia. <laughs> or even like a you know, uh, yeah. ethically sort of okay. Yeah. Not even <laughs> Not an acceptable version of a uh, dystopia. Yeah. So uh, no cash was ever used at the Muthiaga Club. Mm-hmm. So you paid for your food, your booze, and all the drunken furniture breaking you were doing with different colored paper chits. So like cash is not classy. Mm. You're just like, oh, here's my blue card. You know, <laughs> this is my this is my check put it on my tab yeah right do you have a sense are there just like thousands of british people living in this part of kenya now or like dozens or hundreds or i think it's in the hundreds i don't Uh think it was in the thousands but i guess if you don't count servants and stuff like that Mm -hmm. i mean it's not it i don't know the exact population but i i don't think it's the thousands it's Mm -hmm. it's it's not that big but a lot of people come through sure so these huge estates Uh like for those of us you don't have a frame of reference downton abbey right those estates have 20 bedrooms right right, or more and so you would come in and there's a full staff and you're fed three meals a day and your staff is taken care of and you're given us like in this situation you would go to an estate and your staff would be housed but you would be given house staff to use in the house, right? right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it was very like, there's a lot of extra people there floating the few. So if we're talking about gotcha. influential, you know, full-time colony members, yeah. I don't think that there was 
more than a few hundred. Yeah. Maybe I, less. I, I see what you're saying. Right. Yeah. But there's tons of people coming in from America. They're coming in from the UK. They're coming in from England. Yeah. And they're spending months at a time partying in yeah. these houses. It takes a village to raise a millionaire. <laughs> so back to the Musiaga Country Club. You know how I said you could pay for your broken furniture and stuff? There were so many drunken shenanigans at the club that they had this well-oiled system for having guests pay for broken furniture. <laughs> like, I'll read you an example, okay? <laughs> According to White Mischief, quote, a popular attraction was a gentleman called Tish Miles who would climb onto the roof and hang from the beams like an ape. The other was Derek Fisher, a Happy Valley resident who would order the servants to arrange the chairs and lines to resemble a train. He would then push the chairs through the sitting rooms, hooting and puffing to the howling encouragement of his friends, pretending to be a train. Mm -hmm. That would turn into musical chairs, delightful, and then the chairs in turn would be hauled through the windows. <laughs> So if you're talking about people kicking it, like I'm, I really am trying to impress on you yeah, that it's like it. way beyond the pale of like what you would assume. We're not talking pinkies up. We're talking yeah, about right. throwing chairs through windows. Yeah, we're talking about uh, hair bands in the 80s destroying hotel rooms. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then the next morning you show up in your beautiful, impeccably dressed clothing, go to the back office and pay for the windows. <laughs> so <laughs> like, we really got to get this part of this operation streamlined. Oh, that's funny. In 1924, a couple hit the scene who helped shape Happy Valley into a legendary community described by the three A's, altitude, alcohol, and adultery. <laughs> Classics. So this contributed to the folklore that inspired the common phrase at the time, quote, are you married or do you live in Kenya? <laughs> Way before Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I know. It's really similar, huh? Yeah. These two people were Jocelyn Hay, 22nd Earl of Errol, naturally blonde, blue-eyed, arrogant, and devastatingly handsome, and Lady Mira Adina Sackville, petite, dark-featured sex goddess. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. let's talk first about Lord Errol. So if you remember, I know you said you wouldn't remember long names. That He's is the jock? victim. Yeah. No. Oh, damn it. <laughs> that is the victim of our story. Okay. So this is a tragic ending for Lord Errol. Okay. In Berkshire, England, there's this prestigious all-boys boarding school called Eton College. And this is where most of our male characters went to school, along with people like Prince William and Harry, the ones we know of from today. Like, it's a very, very famous, oh, okay. like, kingmaker yeah. fancy school. That's still around today. Exactly. Okay. Um, and almost every man in this story went to Eton, knew each other at Eton, you know, mm -hmm. like, kept those friends long life. It's like a high school, so it's 13 to 18. It's automatically terrifying to me. <laughs> Actually, Eddie Redmayne went there, and also um, House, uh, Hugh, Lo Hugh Laurie, the oh, actor, they both yeah. went there, too. I went through and, like, 
you know, during one of those times when I critically needed to get the script done, I just sat there and read everybody who went to eat and see who <laughs> yeah. I knew. Like Eddie Redmayne, <laughs> what movies is he in? How do I know that name? Oh, I haven't seen a single thing he's in, but somehow I know he's famous. <laughs> Why am I doing this? Get back to work. <laughs> All right. So in the early 1920s, Jocelyn Hay, 22nd Earl of Errol, who is the victim of our story mm-hmm. and goes by Jocelyn. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Not, not Jock. Be, not to be confused with Jock. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. <laughs> this man was the most attractive boy at Eton College. So boys would literally follow Jocelyn Hay around in a pack. He was just apparently like a magnet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just a cute anecdote, but like years after he went to Eton, one of his former classmates was on a British quiz show. Mm-hmm. And the question was, if you had been born homosexual, who would you have wanted to have an affair with? And without missing a beat, the guy just confidently answered Jocelyn Hay. Yeah. But nobody in the audience knew what he was talking <laughs> yeah, about. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were expecting He's, some famous celebrity thing. It was just like at the tip, of, like the yeah. front of his mind years after school. It's like, that's he's a powerful guy, right? Yeah, right. Now, Jocelyn Hay's family was old, old, old school fancy, right? His family title was the Earls of Errol, and they are the hereditary Lord High Constables of Scotland since 1315. So if you want any like visual significance, uh-huh. during coronations, their family walks directly behind the royal family, right? So okay. they're like the next gotcha. chunk of people. Mm-hmm. But despite all of that, they actually didn't have any significant family money left. So most most of these people are living off of the income of trusts. So there's like a big estate, and then there's an amount of that pays out an amount of money into a trust, yeah. and then you get this annual income from the trust. Yeah. Now they didn't have that, right? So they had to earn their livelihood. So he had this massive title, but not not any you know substantial money. You know, compared to his peers who are like princes and and shit like that. Okay. So Jocelyn Hay was kicked out of Eton before he graduated. So he was kicked out at 17. And after that, his dad tried to save face by getting him into the foreign office to work as a diplomat. To prepare, his dad got Jocelyn Hay a position assisting him as an honorary attache in Berlin from 1920 to 1922. This would be the only official job he would have for like, I don't know, 20 years or something uh-huh, like that. Uh-huh. So when he returned to England, things are going to plan. He passes his foreign office exams and then he meets and falls in love with a married woman. Lady Adina Gordon, as she was called at the time, was eight years older, uh, had been married and divorced twice by this point and had a couple of kids. She had two sons. Mm-hmm. Now, Adina was... A wild child, right? She had open affairs during both of her marriages. She was really beautiful, thin and petite. And the author and other kind of publications describe her as girlish. Uh, She was known for walking around barefoot to show off her size three feet. That feels very male gazy, but... (laughs) Yeah, right. She was tiny. But I I think like she was just... uh, really famously beautiful sort of wild child socialite. Right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
And she had a massive trust also. So Jocelyn Hay is in love with Lady Adina and her tiny feet. And, (laughs) you know, despite what his dad wanted for him, they married in September 1923. And... Basically, Jocelyn Hayes' dad was pissed, right? There's Mm -hmm. an old rumor that before he left for Kenya, his dad slapped him across the face and said he cared more about fornicating than fighting, which was... (laughs) (laughs) Who wouldn't? (laughs) I'm going to slap you across the face and give you the biggest compliment known to the humankind. (laughs) Uh, He ended up essentially cutting Jocelyn off, even though there wasn't really much family money to go off of. Mm -hmm. So he set him up with a 300 pound annual allowance. So back then, like no family money meant that like you would still get some money from the family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was just not Mm -hmm. a lot. So that's around $23,000 in today's dollars, right? So not very much to live off of, but definitely a lot of money for paying out every year. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, especially if you've married into also a wealthy family, so your wife has sounds like all the money she could ever need or want. Exactly. That becomes a tactic of Jocelyn Hay Mm -hmm. for the rest of his life. Lady Adina's trust paid around $420,000 in today's money every year. So I I got these numbers by basically figuring out... (laughs) It's a little bit of like a a math problem, but it's like you use an online conversion calculator to say pounds in 1925. Mm -hmm. What, how many pounds are they worth today? Yeah. And then you take those pounds and I'm converting them into dollars. Mm -hmm. We have an amount that we can understand. Yeah, right. (laughs) So, I mean, give and take maybe, you know, a little bit of money. It's about 420,000 in today's money. Okay. At any rate... Adina and Jocelyn's marriage made them social outcasts in England. So they moved to Kenya in April of 1924 to get away from all the haters. <laughs> Jocelyn was 23 and Adina was 31. This is her third marriage. Right. In 1925, they moved into a house in Happy Valley called Clouds. And by house, I mean a mansion with several wings that looked over a courtyard and had a name because fancy houses had names back then. <laughs> so every time they're like, oh, we bought a new house. Just picture the biggest thing mansion yeah. on an estate. That's yeah. what you're buying. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> Jocelyn and Adina loved to entertain and would have crowds of guests come from England and stay for weeks at a time. So according to Generations of Gossip, Adina was super, super, super into swinging. One weirdo eyes wide shut game she liked to play was to make the guests all hold up a sheet and she would place a a feather in the middle of the sheet and everyone had to blow as hard as they could back and forth to blow this feather around. Mm -hmm. And in the end, based on where the feather landed, Adina would start to pair people off to have sex like she would assign people sex partners based on where the feather landed. right so it's like spin the bottle basically yeah but I, with like everyone's hot nasty gin-soaked breath <laughs> just like pushing around some <laughs> avian flu feather yeah right you know just things were simpler back then uh another game that they uh-huh. would play uh, both of these games i'm not I was worked pretty hard to try to figure out exactly how they worked. I'm uh-huh. not exactly sure. But what she would do is she would have all the bedrooms locked when her guests arrived. And then there would be a table with all of the keys to the bedrooms like lined up. Mm-hmm. And there would be duplicates for each key. So you could walk up and take your key 
and leave the duplicate uh-huh. or you could take both keys and give one to your wife uh-huh, uh-huh. you know or you could kind of see what happens so that's another hey, way that, to do it. that actually sounds fun as hell <laughs> Nick <laughs> I like that no yeah, don't the, the feather thing was gross but the key thing I'm pretty much on board with <laughs> oh my god don't say that <laughs> for Adina's part her bedroom was nicknamed the battleground <laughs> And it was like open season, anything goes. Adina is like the queen of the scene, right? She had this um, really massive master bathroom. And when her guest came, she'd be like, oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. Come on, come with me. I'm just going to get ready for the party. And she'd have them come into her master bathroom, which is like the size of our apartment. Yeah. And then get into a bath in the middle of the room and just like chat them up while she was like buck naked yeah, taking she, a bath yeah. and then get out and be buck naked and have her ladies dress her. Of course. And, like with a full audience of people having cocktails. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, for a while, of course, Adina was considered a ringleader of bad behavior in the colonies and so much so that she was blacklisted from the governor's house. So she wasn't even allowed to go there. Uh-huh. And my impression is is that from reading the book is that the image of the colonies as being hardworking contributors to the British Empire was really jacked up when everyone was out there wearing shorts, having orgies and getting day drunk. So <laughs> the higher ups in the colony just didn't like that look, sure. you know, they did it right. But they were like, you guys are doing it way too hardcore. <laughs> yeah. But the Happy Valley set was really undeterred by this kind of judgy thing, right? They don't care. They were straight up buying and selling Coke and heroin out in the open at the Muthiaga Country Club. <laughs> yeah. Like you could just go out and be like, I'll take there was a story in this book. I mean, there's so many stories, but it was a little anecdote about how one of the women was just known for being perfect all the time. And people were like, Oh, it's because she does heroin (laughs) and it's not she doesn't drink so everyone else would get drunk and wake up the next morning and be like super hungover and messed up and they were like she was just always really calm really (laughs) put together and people would just shoot up like at parties and stuff like that she's the most well-behaved one yeah chilled in the corner (laughs) the whole weekend and while adina was dominating on the orgy front (laughs) uh jocelyn held his own he was like the don juan of happy valley Uh he spent his days horse riding playing polo and bullying his staff and then his nights just sleeping with other people's wives yeah yeah now, in addition to all the sex parties and stuff, mm-hmm. Adina and Josh were also known for throwing the most cracking, elegant balls and dinner parties uh-huh. with hella drama. <laughs> so they substituted the sex for drama? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the three A's, man. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the altitude be making people crazy. <laughs> Uh, Jack Soames, if you remember, our lonely man with a thousand servants. Yeah. At some point, he found himself a wife who's about 14 years younger than him to hang with. And her name was Nina Drury. She said, quote, the dramas that used to take place were unbelievable. It must have been the climate, I think. Mm. One time at their clouds estate, two guys got into this really intense argument at the dinner table. And Jack Soames turns to his young wife and he tells her, you know, you need to go to your room. Now, my baby, there's going to be some trouble and you must go to bed. Mm-hmm. So Nina's irritated about missing the drama, but she's like, <laughs> fine, whatever. And she goes upstairs and sits in her room. But right after she does, 
uh, she says that various people were led into my room sobbing and crying and saying there was going to be a duel and that they were going to kill each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like, you know, that was the... That was what was going on. There was just always drama. That, right. Oh, they're going to kill each other. What's going on? Well, right? that was the fighting that homie's dad was talking about. Yeah, you know, right. either these parties are like they're fornication or fighting. Yeah, you know right. What I mean, you can't have you got to have one or the other. People are passionate. Mm. In 1925, the 26 year old American wife of Comte de Frederic de Janze. <laughs> sorry, that's French. I can't do it. Comte is a count. So basically uh-huh. he was a super fancy French count. Yeah. Emerged as a popular neighbor of Jocelyn and Adina. And this American wife started having an open affair with Joss, like a very passionate affair. Mm-hmm. This woman, Alice Silverthorne, was from Chicago. She was the daughter of a Scottish felt manufacturer and her mother was the heir to this vast meat packing fortune mm-hmm. so alice's mom died of tuberculosis when alice was five leaving her very wealthy and also with tuberculosis mm-hmm. alice was a wild ass in her early teens she hit the scene drinking and dancing often with her alcoholic father before she was 20 she was known for walking her pet panther down the street on her visits to france so she was just <laughs> a high-end socialite, huge, vast wealth, yeah. and also indoctrinated into the kicking it scene, the club scene, by her dad right. at the age of 14. She was just living a real-life version of a Britney Spears music video. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Thank you. She married a French count that she met in an antique shop in Paris when she was 21. So that's Frederick. They had two kids back to back and spent most of their time outside of the births of those kids on safari in Kenya. They dumped the kids as soon as they were born, which is kind of par for the course. And then the kids were raised by Frederick's sister at the family chateau in France. Right. And then they eventually go off to the Easton High School or whatever. And then then they'll meet us in Kenya later. Parents and kids are just like... They're totally right. Because what's her name, Adina, who uh, the who's in her third marriage now and has these kids. They're not in the picture. No, the kids are gone. The kids are in England somewhere. Yeah. So in Kenya, Alice blossoms. This is where she likes to be. She's a huge animal lover. So one of the examples of things she had, she had this like pet lion cub that she would pose for pictures with. Then she rehoused it after she realized it took two full zebras a week to feed it. (laughs) But she would keep big cats and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh She was gorgeous and popular. She loved to hold court and she'd often entertain people by playing the ukulele and then singing in this deep husky voice. Mm -hmm. In 1926, while having an affair with Jocelyn Hay, Alice started another affair with a different neighbor named Raymond D. Trafford, who was known to be a very dramatic man. Mm-hmm. Frederick tried to save his marriage from these two public affairs by bringing Alice back to Paris, but basically she left almost immediately and back to Kenya and to Raymond. In the spring of 1927, the couple felt like they were finally serious. So Mm -hmm. they go to Europe. Alice went to Europe to divorce Frederick, who had been there with her children. And Raymond went to England to announce his engagement to Alice to his family. Now, 
there's some side eye about this. This is one of the examples of people thinking that Raymond's a little dramatic. Mm-hmm. Instead of sending a letter or something, on March 27th, 1927, he met up with Alice in Paris and delivered his bad news in person. His parents had rejected his marriage with Alice. They did not want him to marry Alice. They were hardcore Roman Catholics, and they said if he married a divorced woman with kids, they'd cut him off financially, which was like a deal breaker for old Raymond and most of the people in the Happy Valley set. They're like, well, then I just won't get married. Yeah, right. I'll just keep cheating on my wife that you approve of with this woman. I mean, why are they even getting married? I don't don't understand. They're always getting married. And I'm just like, (laughs) I don't understand that you can violate all the social norms, but this one of getting married is the thing you do. I think that you're playing musical chairs with, you know, trust funds. Yeah, I don't. I don't really understand. Yeah. It baffles me. Maybe they're just in love. <laughs> uh, why do I laugh at that? It's pretty much any, any, it's pretty much any reason except for that one in my book. But <laughs> so he delivers the bad news and then the couple has lunch together on a ca- in a cafe in Paris that mm. day. They take a sad walk down the streets of Paris. They visited a sporting goods store. So you know, Raymond looked around and I think Alice bought a small package. Then Alice walked Raymond to the train station where he booked a ticket back to London to stay with his parents, to go back home and get his money. Mm-hmm. And as the train started, Alice jumped into the carriage car to kiss Raymond goodbye, then pulled out a gun she had low key bought at the sporting goods store, shot Raymond in the chest, and shot herself in the stomach. <gasps> Oh, my God. Alice, the animal lover, had a friend's German shepherd with her who went absolutely apeshit after the gunshots and attacked anyone who tried to get into the carriage to help the couple who were bleeding out. So eventually... Oh, my God. (laughs) Wait, what happened? Wait, hold on. So they're dying. They're not dead. They're bleeding out. They're bleeding out, and this dog is like attacking all of the paramedics and people trying to get into the train car. German shepherds are no joke, too. And the whole time, they survived, just spoiler alert. Uh But the whole time, Alice is in there going like, that's my friend's dog. Don't hurt him. He lives at this address. (laughs) And so she was really adamant that the dog needed to be you know, cleanly and humanely captured and delivered back to her friend. Wait, so, what happened? Why did she do that? Wh- what? Because she's just pissed that he won't marry her? Well, they're being separated. I mean, her, if so you she's think crazy. about it in a romantic right. way, she's like, we can't be together because your parents are keeping us apart. And she, he had been promising her they were going to be engaged and she blew up her life. To yeah, go but it's not a Romeo them. and Juliet like suicide pact. <laughs> she just is like, well, then I'll shoot us both poorly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm just giving you like what her mentality was. Mm-hmm. So they both just barely survived. They got to the hospital. They were fine. And then Alice was charged with attempted murder. She was held at this women's prison in France mm-hmm. called Saint Lazare in the same cell as Matahari. So it's a really famous cell that all these different women came through. Oh yeah. You, at the same time or no, at different times. Different times. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. It's all history. It's all just one lump sum in my mind. Yeah. I'm trying to get Muriel to do the Matahari episode. Yeah, I don't know if it, that'll happen. But I, I'm gonna, I think I might do it. Okay. 
According to um, Wikipedia, Alice's defense lawyer said that tuberculosis and depression had, quote, deadened her intelligence. So that was the main thrust of the defense argument, that she was dumb. <laughs> she, from, was, she was dumb from tuberculosis. She's dumb. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's the best defense ever. Well, they apparently it totally worked. She received a suspended sentence of six months. And at the trial, the judge trash talk Raymond for canceling the engagement and starting this whole thing. <laughs> so whatever they did, they were like, she's a poor lady. She yeah. was in love. This was a crime of passion. She has tuberculosis. She's depressed. She's dumb. She's and dumb. And you should have done that to her. Yeah. So it ended up with Raymond getting chastised by the judge, which I was just like, that's insane. Okay. So Alice got off easy in France, yeah. but she ended up getting banned from the Kenyan colony for several years for being an undesirable alien. She was allowed to go back to Kenya briefly and pack up her house. So while she was there, she started up her affair with Jocelyn Hay again, who was obviously undeterred by the gun thing (laughs) and probably, frankly, pretty into it. Yeah, right. She eventually ended up marrying Raymond in 1932. So even though like all of this is happening about three years... The guy she shot? Yes, about three years after she shot him... She ended up actually marrying him. (laughs) This is actually the most ridiculous story. So they got married and then they were trying to figure out where to go to their, on their honeymoon. And Alice loves Kenya. So what Mm -hmm. she did was she behind his back purchased the um, little cottage where they used to have their trysts while Uh she was still married to the French count. So she bought it and she was like, now honey, we're going to go on this honeymoon and we're going to go back to Kenya and live in this little cottage. And Raymond was like, I don't want to go do that. Mm. They know you shot me. Like it's weird, (laughs) right? It's just weird. And you were like banned from going there. Uh And I just don't uh really want to do that. Get into it. Right. And they're getting into this argument, so she reaches into her purse. No. And she says she was just she just went to get some makeup, but Raymond thought she was grabbing a gun. Uh-huh. So he ran away <laughs> yeah. and he never came back. Good for him. He ran to Australia. Good for him. And he didn't divorce her. He just like would not have any contact this with This guy isn't dramatic. He's the only one with sense this whole time. That's the most sensible thing. Come on, you don't think it's a little dramatic to be like, absolutely I'm not. That's no, that makes sense. If you shoot me and I marry you again, and then you pull out some lipstick, bro, bye. I'm hanging out with ancestral twins in Australia. You know what I mean? I'm out of here. Well, I I do. I would just like to clear, quantify that by uh-huh. saying you're also a very dramatic man. No. <laughs> No, that's gaslighting. It's not that's gaslighting. You're gaslighting all us bros who are like, I got to go. Okay, well, fine. Later, a few years later, they officially yeah. divorced. And actually, Alice was eventually let back into Kenya in the late 1930s after her former husband, Frederick, the French Count, mm-hmm. and her most recent shooting victim slash former husband, Raymond, yeah. petitioned the government to lift her banishment. So they, on her behalf, went and said, you got to let this chick go back to Kenya. Uh-huh. She really wants to go back. <laughs> yeah. So and she, we all want her here also, now yeah. that we think about it. <laughs> yeah. So Alice spent... You know, she really bounced around for a little bit. She was told she couldn't go back to Chicago because she was being 
basically socially shunned for the shooting. So she couldn't really hang out in London. She couldn't go back to Paris. Frederick was not really wanting her to oh, be around. Poor her. She couldn't People go back are to Chicago. treating her the way she actually behaves. And then she, she went back to Kenya where she uh-huh. was still kind of socially marginalized, okay. but that's kind of why she ended up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, she spent the last years of her life living by a river in Happy Valley in an old farmhouse, taking care of a whole massive animals and shooting heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, she died of suicide in 1941 at the age of 42 using the same gun she shot herself and Raymond with at the train station in Paris. <sighs> Man. So it's fast and furious life. Yeah. And yeah. you'll notice like I tried to keep a lot of pe- people's ages mm-hmm. because this set died early. Yeah. Every, when people, I don't know very many people from the main cast. Who, yeah were under uh, over 60 when they died yeah they're very they all died very young yeah so back to kind of where we were chronologically in 1928 the year after alice left jocelyn for raymond and then shot raymond in the stomach in france so we're going mm-hmm. back to that point in time okay right after his affair with alice and getting kind of jilted by alice jocelyn hay met and fell in love with his second wife Edith Mildred Ramsey Hill or Molly. Mm-hmm. So Molly was right up our boy's alley. She was married. She was <laughs> eight years older than him, yeah. petite and thin, and an heiress with a hefty trust that paid out 8,000 pounds annually. So that's around $650,000 a year in today's dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 50% more than his last wife. Yes, he's moving on up in the world. Mm-hmm. Molly was married to a wealthy rancher who had built a huge Moroccan-style castle at the edge of a lake in Happy Valley and named it Ossarian. Now, there's some legend that when Molly's husband, Ramsey Hill, found his wife with Jocelyn at the Norfolk Hotel, he chased him around with a whip in front of a big crowd of people. Now, a longtime servant of Jocelyn Hayes told James Fox, the author of White Mischief, a different story. The servant said that one day after a a house party at this massive Moroccan-style castle, Jocelyn Hay casually asked the servants to pack up two of Ramsey Hill's Buicks with luggage and drive him out to take a safari with Ramsey Hill's wife, Molly. (laughs) So they were like, Okay, so they did it, but Mm -hmm. obviously that's a little strange. And when Ramsey Hill came home to find his Buicks and his wife gone and rumors that Jocelyn Hay had been sniffing around, who's like obviously this time was notorious Don Juan. Uh If uh your wife is with Jocelyn Hay, it's like not a good look. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, He went out searching for the couple with his big ass rhino whip. So he drives around in a car with Jocelyn Hayes' servants saying, where did they go? Where did you take them? Da-da-da-da-da. And they kind of take him on a wild goose chase for a while. But eventually they land in this big field and he looks into the field and he sees his Buicks and a tent, right? Mm -hmm. And the two people inside the tent. Mm -hmm. So when he walks up and he finds the couple hanging out in the tent in a field together, that's when he chased Jocelyn Hay around, beating him with a rhino whip. <laughs> so <laughs> it wasn't in front of the club, but he did do that. <laughs> okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
The Ramsey Hills divorced and Molly's husband sued Jocelyn Hay for the $3,000 in debt the pair had ran up under his name during their affair. So Uh that's hotel rooms, whatever. Did he get the money? Yeah. And just for the record, Uh that's about $250,000 in today's money. So that's a lot of debt. That's like big debt, right? Yeah, yeah. So Jocelyn Hay, in turn, answered the suit. He paid the debt. With Lady Adina's trust fund money. <laughs> His first wife's money? She, he's still married. Oh, they haven't married. Of course, they haven't married yet. Sure, yeah, sure. they're just okay. having an affair. So yeah, this whole yeah. time, they're racking, they're paying I get off, yeah. switching for their extravagant affair with the other spouse's right. he's money. He's robbing Adina to pay Molly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So Molly was awarded the castle in the divorce that was uh, later taken over by Jocelyn and nicknamed the Gin Palace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> After Lady Adina found out Jocelyn had paid his pricey debts to Ramsey Hill using her trust fund money, she divorced his trifling ass. Jocelyn and Molly were married in 1930 and lived off of Molly's handsome trust payments. Now, just to like, close the story of Lady Adina. She remained in Kenya for the rest of her life. I think she ended up having six marriages or something like that. Mm-hmm. Both of her sons act from her first marriage actually were killed in World War II. And she did actually have a daughter with Jocelyn Hay, which doesn't feature very large in their lives. Mm-hmm. So they had a daughter named Diana. And according to the Happy Valley scuttlebutt, Diana was just largely avoided for the for all of her childhood and then sent to england to live with family after her father's murder Mm. after her dad's death as his only heir she became the 23rd countess of errol and she also died really young at the age of 52. lady adina remained at clouds and remarried twice before her death in 1955 and she died young as well at the age of 62. so by now at the beginning of his marriage to Molly, yeah. Jocelyn Hay was 29, living high on the hog in a straight-up castle where all the bedrooms faced a sprawling courtyard overlooking a marble pool so you could look out your bedroom door and see who was sneaking into each other's bedroom. So it was another <laughs> perfect sex palace. <laughs> Uh, the rumor was that the marble pool that was featured in the middle of the courtyard yeah. was actually a vomitorium for his guests uh, maximum enjoyment. <laughs> Does that mean where they would vomit? Yeah, that's like where you throw up if you ate too much so yeah. that you can eat more and not be uncomfortable. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, my God. Like they do in uh, Hunger Games. Yeah, or Rome. Yeah. Rome, yeah. So it's a real thing. That's crazy. <laughs> So Jocelyn Hay was a smart, sexy dude, an excellent horse rider, and he had really torn it up in Happy Valley over the last six years. Yeah. He had a lot of haters, but who cares, right? He didn't. Yeah. Jocelyn Hay was out there bathing in expensive oils and having two-hour face massages at the hairdressers. (laughs) (laughs) About... About Jocelyn Hay in his prime, yeah. James Fox wrote, quote, I love this line. Yeah. Self-indulgence and a refined sensual thuggery lay on Lord Errol's lifestyle like a thick layer of lard. Ah, fine sensual thuggery. <laughs> thick layer of lard. Isn't that yeah, great? that is great. <laughs> 
So the same year, Jocelyn Hay started his affair with Molly Ramsey Hill. So that's 1928. Another important person we should bring into the picture hit the Happy Valley scene. Uh Uh-oh. So get ready for some clunky name stuff. I have to say it, but then we'll kind of come up with a nickname, okay? Good. So this chick's original name is Gladys Helen Beckett. In 1928, she was fresh off a divorce. So her name was Lady Charles Markham. But... We, in this story, will call her Gladys because this chick's name is going to change again in like four sentences. Uh uh Okay, Okay, Gladys. Gladys. So Gladys came to Kenya for the first time as a guest of the Prince of Wales, Edward VIII. So if you remember from The Crown, that's Queen Elizabeth's uncle, the guy who abdicated the British throne so he could marry that American divorcee. Mm, yeah, right? yeah, and then everyone was mad at him. Right, and yeah. he's like kind of a womanizer and like a, you know, like he was out there spending tons of money and being really scandalous and mm. having affairs. And back then, solidly and still in his womanizing days before he got married, yeah. Gladys was a part of his entourage to go to Kenya. Right. right. So the Edward VIII party was a wild one and Gladys was no wallflower. In Happy Valley, Gladys, a striking woman with pale skin and jet black hair, met, she was partying, right? And then Mm -hmm. she meets and marries the founding father, Lord Delamere, who was 30 years her senior, becoming Gladys Helen Chalamanle, Baroness Delamere. (laughs) (laughs) So she marries a short angry ugly guy who kind of started this whole thing yeah yeah so that's like these two kind of points Uh meeting where like the crazy he his wife had died in 1914 his Mm -hmm. first wife he had no kids and no spouse yeah so he's kicking it in happy valley for like a couple decades yeah until he hooks up with this woman yeah who comes in right in the party of edward the eighth who's like one of the craziest ones in his party (laughs) (laughs) right so they meet their match they hook up right yeah So the timing's a little strange, but it all happened in the same year. She married Lord Delamere, but she was still kind of traveling with uh, with Edward VIII. And that summer in 1928, Gladys went to this dinner with Edward VIII at the Muthiaga Country Club and really cut it up. So this is like an infamous incident. Mm -hmm. A longtime resident of Happy Valley named Karen Blixen wrote to her sister in 1928 talking about the scandalous Lady Delamere. So this is what she said. Quote, Lady Delamere behaved scandalously at supper, I thought. She bombarded the Prince of Wales with big pieces of bread. (laughs) And one of them hit me, sitting beside him, in the eye. So I have a black eye today. From a piece of bread? Who's drama now? And finished up, this is what she said, she, and finished up by rushing at him, overturning his chair and rolling him around on the floor. (laughs) I do not find that kind of thing in the least amusing and stupid to do at a club. As a whole, I do not find her particularly likable. She looks so odd, exactly like a painted wooden doll. Now, Lady Delamere, uh-huh. or Gladys, was dropped from the entourage after that. Uh, oh, so even... even she could get a little uh, trouble. Yeah, she she didn't get back in his good graces like a okay. few years later, but okay. definitely she went a little... Yeah, she's in She did a little too much. Yeah. Uh, Lord Delamere died three years after they were married, and that bread-throwing maniac who was dropped from the entourage ended up becoming mayor of Nairobi in 1938 and served three consecutive terms. 
And at some point in there, also managed to have a brief affair with Jocelyn Hay. <laughs> of course. I feel like you can't live there without doing that. By 1940, Gladys was now widowed with the title Lady Delamere and also mayor of Nairobi. Mm -hmm. She was known for being eccentric and boozy. And uh, at that point, she kind of let it all out. She just started wearing these large, ostentatious headdresses, mm -hmm. walking around town like a big boss. Okay. <laughs> so she went from uh -huh. like crazy bread throwing to sort yeah. of like, you know, softly drunken matriarch. Gotcha. <laughs> Pretty quick. Now, back to Jocelyn Hay. He was cruising, playing croquet in the mid-30s, doing it with ladies, whatever. In 1934, he briefly joined the Union of British Fascists, but with World War II brewing, it seemed less cool to be a fascist, so he eventually <laughs> dropped it. Yeah. But he did continue on this political streak, and I just want to say, mm -hmm. this guy has a pretty wild reputation for like living off of credit, living off of other ladies, but he did actually towards the end of his life start to develop a political streak. So in a kind of a left turn of events, the perpetually broke playboy who'd only have one job in his life as attache to his dad mm -hmm. started working for the government in Kenya. And he was actually pretty good. He was elected, elected secretary to the production and settlement board. And at one point, a fire destroyed all the records and Errol was actually able to recreate most of them from memory, mm -hmm. which is pretty impressive. Yeah. And unless he just did it so that it was what he wanted it to be. I mean, who knows, right? But he was just known for being more like well equipped to do the job than anyone would have guessed. Okay. Right. So they're mm -hmm. like, wow, he's not. Okay. Yeah. Right. All right. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of working on this new career for himself. I'm not clear about how much it paid. I don't know if it paid anything, uh -huh. but he was definitely doing something more productive than getting drunk and playing croquet. Right. So after a while, the inevitable happened. Jocelyn Hay lost his interest in his, you know, gravy train Molly. Mm -hmm. And he ended up starting to spend long stretches of time away from their Moroccan castle. Molly responded by getting super deep into heroin and died of a heroin overdose in 1939. Jesus. At this point, Jocelyn Hay had been completely absent from the house. He just wasn't coming by anymore. But there was a doctor, Dr. Joseph Gregory, who is the general practitioner for all of the Happy Valley set. Mm -hmm. So... I'm sure he saw a lot of this. He said he came into the house. She had heroin abscesses all over her arms. Uh. And he said, quote, she had been ill and lonely for a long time. And she said to me, you will promise me to come to my funeral, even if you're the only one. I said, of course I would. And she died that afternoon. And basically he was like, towards the end, no one would come and see her. Yeah. Not Jocelyn Hay, but like anybody who wanted to have a, because people wanted to have a good time. And that's the dark side of that. Or one right. of the dark sides yeah. is that like once some people tip over the edge, which happened to quite a few people, like it happened yeah. to Alice, right? It, it happened to people in the set that just got too deep into drugs. They just stopped. That's not fun anymore. So they yeah. just stopped talking. As soon them. as the consequence to those actions, then you just like turn the other way. Right, right. Yeah. They talk a lot about how like, for instance, our Lady Delamere, right? Mm -hmm. She was really a huge looker. She was really beautiful, but they just drink all the time. And he was like, you know, by the age of 40, she'd lost her looks. And so 
then she doesn't become an outcast, but then yeah. she's eccentric, you know? Yeah, So, totally. like, back then she was wild, but then she kind of gets, you know, you get thick and your face gets bloated and she just started wearing headdresses and being like, well, I'm the mayor now, you know? <laughs> it's like very, yeah, yeah. you know, the way they toss people aside yeah, when you have totally. the effects of that. Yeah. He said at the end there was no one there and then all these flowers poured into the house. But he was like, when she was alive, nobody even stopped by to say hello. Right. And those flowers were probably coming from people in Britain or whatever that would, you know, never wanted anything to do with her, but they send the flowers because they feel like it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. So tragic. Yeah. Yeah. So after her death, Jocelyn Hay inherited the gin palace, the big castle, but he was cut off completely from Molly's trust. So he couldn't afford the upkeep on the castle. Mm -hmm. So, Jocelyn moved out of the gin palace and closed it up and then moved into a bungalow suite at the Muthiaga Country Club, which honestly made having affairs much easier. There were no taxis or travel, just good times living on credit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And by 1940, World War II had broken out. And at the age of 39, Jocelyn Hay became military secretary for the colony with the rank of captain, perhaps finally granting his father a whisper of joy. (laughs) Unfortunately, he would be dead in a few months. Oh, my God. Murdered in that car, right? Mm -hmm. From the beginning. (sighs) That's where we started. The end is in the beginning. Oh, my God. Muriel. The clock began ticking when Sir John Henry Delves Broughton or Jock, landed in South Africa with his new wife, Diana. It was another marriage of great age gap. Jock was 57, recently divorced from his wife of 37 years, and running to Kenya to escape the crushing weight of being socially shunned for his affair. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Diana was 26, having been Jock's affair partner since she was 21. They were married quietly in a register office in England and then boarded a steamship to Africa. On November of 1940, the couple arrived on the steps of the Muthiaga Country Club. Jock, now past middle age, had been to Happy Valley many times. In the past, he was around in Happy Valley's heyday and knew all the major players. Now... Many years later, some people are much older, things have shifted, some people are dead, but the club and Happy Valley was still this social hub, despite being a little worse for the wear. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Muthiaga Country Club had been a little torn up, you know, <laughs> you can only replace windows so many times. Right, everyone's a little bloated. Everyone's a little bloated. We're Black like eyes from all the bread throwing. Exactly. We're mm-hmm. like in that stage of like... A lot of this is like where we are after we've lived pretty hard for like 10 years, right? Right. So the couple stepped inside to have lunch with an important figure in Happy Valley and longtime friend of Jock's. And that person was Gladys Helen Chalmondeley, Baroness Delamere. (laughs) (laughs) The widow of our short, angry man who started it all. Right. Yes. Mayor of Nairobi, presumably wearing an enormous headdress. <laughs> yeah. She greeted the couple and the three of them sat down to some chicken liver pudding. And so began the Happy Valley descent into darkness. 
<laughs> and does this conclude part one of our <laughs> tale of white mischief? Yes! <laughs> we did it! Thank you so much for listening to part one. We're going to have part two for you coming out next week and a little earlier for our Patreon subscribers. Uh, Okay, here we go. Every once in a while, speaking of Patreon, Mm -hmm. I'm reminded that some people don't know what Patreon is or why it's important for us. I understand that. It's one of those words that just gets thrown around a lot. It's like, is that a pyramid scheme? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. And like some people will be like, I don't know what Patreon is. It's like, I think you're like the most cool you know, online knowledgeable person that I know. <laughs> you cool don't know what it is. Online person. <laughs> I don't know. I just mean aware of of internet stuff. You know what I mean? Okay, here we go. So here's a down and dirty on Patreon. Muriel and I make this podcast and distribute it for free. And as of now, we don't make money from advertisers or sponsors. But we will soon, I'm sure. We're working on it. But we do bring in money directly from you, our listeners. Patreon is the website that facilitates that process. The community of people out there across this planet who enjoy what we do and can afford five bucks a month can either download the Patreon app or visit patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders, plug in a credit card number, and give us some money each month for our (laughs) services. That money goes directly to the two of us so we can grow this show. Plus, in addition to knowing that you're supporting an independently produced and distributed show, you get access to a back catalog of bonus episodes and all future bonus episodes to come. There's a lot of good stuff on there that's pretty fun. Yeah. I think this week... Or this month, we did an episode on lobotomies. Yeah. Which I was like, it's not really a murder, but it feels like a true crime, even though they were <laughs> yeah. legal. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there, it's like the history of lobotomies and how that came about, how widespread they were. Well, and, and like, it all features this one guy who really should be the household name in American lore yeah, or whatever. Yeah. It's pretty. I, I just looked into it because I was super affected by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, yeah. And I've always wanted to know, like, what was that? Yeah. And uh, definitely, I got a complete uh, brain full of horrific things. So if <laughs> Much you're into like that, the lobotomy patients themselves. It's very cool. It's really, really, it's a, there's a lot of fun episodes that are maybe don't quite fit the brief on this uh, podcast, but yeah. they are just really fun and interesting. Yeah. Nick does some episodes that are fantastic. It's just very fun. Yeah, I'm working on one right now that's going to be pretty intense. But a lot of them do fit the brief. Anyways, just, just you know, the, the episodes are good. We've got fresh ones coming out. And so, yes, please hit up Muriel's Murders on Patreon. It is undeniably amazing for us and this podcast to have your support over there. Yeah. Speaking okay. of which. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murder. <laughs> Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, <laughs> you know what to do. It's Patreon, baby. Uh, okay. Also, we draw and animate fun little bonus content on our social media sites, so please follow us on social media, at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, our DMs are open and you can email us at muralsmurders at gmail.com and be like Tevin man rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts it does help us grow and it makes us feel hella good so warm and fuzzy yeah and if you're listening on Spotify you can actually rate us there that's a new thing yeah and 
there's a trick you can do. You can add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends should tune into, you know, mm-hmm. share it around. We're also going to keep doing these Q&As and polls through the Spotify show notes. So if you happen to be listening there, check us out. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. And that's it. See Have you. a great day. <laughs> now I just want to go drink gin by a pool. I know, me too. <laughs>